Well, today is Mother's Day, and I pray that it is a, sw a sweet and wonderful Mother's Day for all of us, but it is also the Lord's Day, as each Sunday is, a glorious celebration of the resurrected and living Jesus, the King. And so as we do each Lord's Day, so we do today what is the most important thing about this day, that we gather together before the Lord to sing to the Lord, to pray to Him, to ask for His help, and to take some prolonged time to look intently at His Word. Recently, we've been studying together in the book of James, a short little letter towards the end of the Bible. If you have a Bible with you today, turn with me to James chapter 3. It'll help you to look inside a Bible as I talk to you about what's there, because really I have nothing other to tell you than what it says there. I'll expound upon it, but we're going to be looking down in our Bibles and following along with what it says in James chapter 3, the second half of that chapter, where James asks the question, who is wise among you? Who is wise? Before I read our passage, let me take a few minutes to introduce it to you by way of illustration. Back in 1997, I got a little interested in university crests. I had a Hebrew professor at the time that would give extra credit for any university crest that you could find that had Hebrew script in their, their motto upon the crest. Incidentally, that Hebrew professor is now our administrative pastor. Well, I got some extra credit for finding things like Yale University's crest with Hebrew words on it for light and truth. But in the rummaging around looking for Hebrew inscriptions, I got interested in the story behind some of these crests, like Harvard's. Harvard's well-known crest and, and motto, it's simply one Latin word, veritas, which means truth in English. Not a bad slogan for an institution of higher learning, especially if you're limited to one word. But at its founding in the mid-17th century, the Harvard crest in motto did not just have one word. Originally, it read, Veritas Christo et Ecclesiae, truth for Christ and the church. At some point in the wake of the Enlightenment, Christ and church were shed, and only Veritas or truth remained. What's more... You may have noticed even today with Harvard's motto in Crest with that Veritas being laid across three different books. Each syllable of Veritas is laid across three different books in like a triangle formation. At its founding, those two top books were open and face open. But the bottom book was face open, but, no, sorry, face, it was open. How do I put this? It was face down. In original, it was face down. It is thought that the two upper open books in this original crest represented Scripture and nature. Why a closed third book? Well, it was likely to signify that there are limits to human reason and discovery. It was to signify that there is truth that God only knows 
There is truth that only He can reveal, and He may not reveal it to us, and we will never know everything that God knows. There are indeed limits to human discovery and reason and truth. The the Bible not only affirms that to be true, but it, it insists that that is part and parcel with true wisdom. In its early decades, new Harvard students were given a guide of expectations, and here is one of them. Let every student be plainly instructed and earnestly pressed to consider well the main end of his life and studies is to know God and Jesus Christ, which is eternal life, and therefore to lay Christ in the bottom as the only foundation of all sound knowledge and learning. And seeing as the Lord only giveth wisdom, let everyone seriously set himself by prayer in secret to seek it of him. Well, it's that kind of Christian humility that is represented in that third book being laid, turned over, face down. As you might guess, today, the Harvard crest has that third book open. It might sound like Christian conspiracy theory to you, like looking for clues of the Illuminati on a dollar bill or something, but this is simply part of Harvard's recorded history. In 1878, Harvard's dean of the medical school openly mocked that old crest with that third book face down. There was such optimism about discovery that when it was decided to turn that bottom book over at the turn of the 20th century, it was a conscious and bold statement that there were now no limits to human reasoning and discovery and that human beings could eventually uncover everything. What a subtle change upon the crest. What a massive difference it represented. And we don't need to single out Harvard here. Any number of institutions have similar stories where they espouse certain things early on and came to reject those and turn to other things uh, eventually. Romans 1 tells us that this is as old as creation. It is the universal trend apart from Jesus. Paul writes in Romans 1, Although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator. So what is wisdom? Who is wise? What do you consider to be wise? Moms here today, what is the wisdom that you are passing on to your children verbally and by your life? What kind of wisdom will you pass along to other moms? Where will you go looking for this wisdom? Or maybe other ladies here who aren't moms or aren't moms yet. As you wait to be a mom, as you maybe even long to be a mom, what kind of woman will you be while you wait? What kind of mom will you prepare yourself to be? How will you wait? Will it be in wisdom? What kind of wisdom? Where do you go for wisdom as you wait? Do you see how relevant these questions are for for all of us, not just moms, for high schoolers? for retirees, for middle-aged people, all of us.
James insists that true wisdom doesn't always look like wisdom, at least according to our preconceived notions of it. It's certainly not determined by those who think that they're wise or those who claim to be wise. This is the wisdom of God, according to his servant James. Chapter 3, verse 13. Who is wise in understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, spiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. That's God's word for us this morning. I see three turns in what James teaches us here in these verses. He tells us that wisdom must be tested in verse 13. He shows us what wisdom isn't in verses 14 through 16. And he shows us what wisdom is in verse 17 and 18. Or if you prefer a different outline, he has a question, a contrast, and a commendation. A commendation. First, wisdom tested. Tested with a question. James asks, who is wise and understanding among you? Now, James doesn't define wisdom for us here. He just simply assumes a definition. We'll come to a definition toward the end of our time together. But what James is after here is what wisdom looks like. What are the signs of true wisdom? And how do you test whether you have the real deal or a sham? Well, by his good conduct, let him show it. Good conduct. That's the translation the ESV and a couple others have. Unfortunately, that's the translation that they have. Good conduct doesn't sound very appealing to me at first. It brings to mind grade school where the teacher had a chart on the wall and the teacher would keep track of bad behavior. So talking when, when you shouldn't have been or getting up when you shouldn't have been. That was a, an X on this chart. There were boxes moving along horizontally. A, a couple boys in the class had nothing but checks all the way across, a big long string. A couple girls had clean, empty boxes all the way across. That's good conduct. It's boring, but it's good conduct. Well, what James is talking about here is not exactly that kind of good conduct. Literally, the Greek word can be translated beautiful life. That word beautiful in, in Greek, it, it's where we get our English word for calligraphy. Beautiful writing. A beautiful life. A well-ordered life, but in a beautiful way. An admirable life. A life that springs from well, should we look back? Chapter 1, verse 18. It comes from being born again by the word of truth. It's of his own will that he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. That's what James is after here. He's asking in various ways, is that true of you, reader? 
Has the word been implanted in your soul, like chapter 1, verse 21 says? And, and are you still receiving it? Are you doing and hearing the word or just hearing the word and you've given up on the doing? James has been asking a series of questions or providing various tests for the genuineness of our faith. Last week, we saw that test upon the tongue. And that section ended with a couple of questions. Look back at chapter 3, verse 11. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Now, I think that there are these things in James that I would call hinge verses. Hinge verses. By that I mean there are these sections, a verse or two at a time, that seem to end a section or a thought, or and or begin the next section or thought. I think verse 11 and 12 are hinge verses, because they naturally wrap up James's discussion about the tongue in the 10 verses before, but echoes of verse 11 and 12 are found in our passage for today. You see, look down. Verse 11, there's salt water mentioned. And then in verse 14, he talks about bitter jealousy. Salt, bitter, same Greek word there. What's my point? Well, let's note this very carefully before we go any further in talking about James's kind of wisdom. James is not simply commending wisdom to any and all. He is simply not offering you wisdom 2.0. He's not giving you a religious equivalent of a leadership book on how to go from good to great. James is giving diagnostic questions and applications for us. What he means to say when he says, who is wise among you is who is a Christian? Who really has what's from God? What's the source of your thinking and your priorities and your orientation in this world? Is it from God? Is it from the new birth? Because it'll show itself. So Christian, is it? Is it demonstrating itself in your life? Not perfectly, but genuinely? Is there something about the beautiful life, the calligraphy of God represented in your life? Again, not perfectly, not without pain or difficulty, but is it a God-wrought life? Is there meekness about your life and work? Do you see that word at the end of verse 13? Meekness. What a counter-cultural idea this was in the first century and still is today. Meekness is often confused with weakness, but it doesn't mean weakness. It means strength under control, strength with gentleness and patience. Moses was called meek, and he was far from weak. He was strong. He was persuasive. He was attractive in his beautiful life. Not always, not perfectly, but genuinely. Even more so, Jesus, he was, he's the epitome of meekness. He's the perfect picture of meekness. He said in Matthew 11 that he was meek. He said, come to me and find rest for your souls because I am meek and lowly in heart. 
Well, we're beginning to test out wisdom according to James's standards. He'll go on later in this section to talk about a wisdom that is from above, but next he turns to a contrast that will help the genuine article of wisdom to stand out against this dark backdrop. You see, verse 15, this is not the wisdom that comes down from above. So here's the contrast. Secondly, there's wisdom from below. Is it wisdom? James almost says that it's wisdom. He doesn't quite. Verse 15 begins with this, whatever this thing is. This, he doesn't define it other than to say, it's not the wisdom that comes from God. It's almost as if he would use the word wisdom about this wisdom. He would put it in finger quotes if he was preaching this section to churches. So maybe you want to add that to your outline, some, some quotes around this kind of wisdom, because it's, it's from below. It's a kind of wisdom. You might remember from our study in 2 Samuel back many months ago, probably now, but in chapter 14, we were introduced to the wise woman of Tekoa. And was she wise? Well, she's called wise. Was she righteous? No, she was sneaky. She was up to something bad. She was crafty. That's the way the word can be translated. And interestingly, that's the word used of the serpent in the garden. He was more crafty than the other creatures. So no surprise that James says that there's a kind of wisdom not from above. Notice verse 15, it's earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. That's the source of this so-called wisdom. It's not from above. It's not from God. It's earthly just of this world, just according to what's seen, just according to what works. It is purely materialistic. It's unspiritual, not directed by God, not empowered by God, not given by God, not used in service of others. And this kind of wisdom is even demonic. Demonic. It doesn't have to have horns. It doesn't have to have horns or a pitchfork or a tail. It's demonic. At root, this kind of wisdom comes from Satan's rebellion against God. It's inspired by him. It's the path of demons. It's the way he operates. Remember in Mark chapter 8 when Peter was the first to confess Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah, Jesus commended him for that and then quickly explained what kind of Christ or Messiah he was going to be. A rejected one, a dying one, not one like Peter imagined. And so Peter rebuked him. He basically said, over my dead body is the Messiah going to die and be rejected. And that's when Jesus said those frightful words. Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Peter was operating simply in human wisdom, wisdom from below, from the earth. It may have looked practical. It may go by the name pragmatic. Peter may have said, this is the traditional view but it was against God in his plan. So Peter 
He was not submitting his thinking and his reasoning to God and to God's plan as spoken through his chosen Messiah. Peter thought that he knew better than God. And we are all born with that kind of opposition to God. Adam and Eve started it. You can read Genesis 3 and see how they were tempted with this and and how it was clear that it was rebellion, it was usurping, it was a desire to be like God, not the way you're supposed to be like God, though. Millennia, millennia plural, later, the Apostle Paul summarizes the matter like this in Romans 8, the natural mind is at enmity with God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. The problem is that bad. The problem is this bad. You're not just missing wisdom. You can't get to it. Hold that thought. We'll come back to that. But notice the characteristics of this wisdom that's from below. You see in verse 14... If you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, and James says essentially, then don't boast about wisdom like you have wisdom. It's just quote unquote wisdom. If you boast about your wisdom when you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, you're being false to the truth. He repeats those words in verse 16, jealousy and selfish ambition. That's the ethic of the world, wanting, grasping, grabbing for me, for mine, me first. Jealousy and the related word envy, these are common things. We know them well. Most of us are probably pretty comfortable with them. I've yet to be in a small group where confession of sin is made and someone says, would you pray for me? I'm guilty of envy or I have jealousy. But how insidious jealousy is. It might be common. It might be prevalent. It might be an acceptable sin if any one of us even thinks it is a sin, but it is instead insidious It is a web of sins that are wrapped up around this envy. Pride is what fuels envy and jealousy. It sweeps up discontent into its web. It tangles with resentment. Resentment toward others who have what we think we should have and they shouldn't have it. And even resentment towards God, either explicitly or implicitly, saying that he hasn't given us what we think we deserve, and there's an injustice because he's given it to them. That's envy. It's related to covetousness. And James will go on in the next chapter, we'll see it next week, to tell us that covetousness is murderous. It's murder. James 4, 2, you desire and do not have, so you murder, you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. He says this is the source of quarrels and fights in this world. Envy and selfish ambition are the opposite of what we find in Jesus Christ. 
And hence, it's the opposite of what he wants us to be as his followers. How can we not think of Philippians 2 at this point if we're familiar with it? Where Paul writes, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Well, that is an unearthly ethic. But it's what brought salvation. And it results in glory, as Paul goes on in Philippians 2 to say. Jesus carved a path through servant suffering, even death to glory in exaltation. He's carved that path that he will one day lead us through. We want exaltation. Glory at the end would be nice. But the path goes through suffering, servantry, humility for those whom he loves and serves and sacrificed himself for. The cross has been so hard for human beings to swallow. Again, we want glory. The cross is this thing in the way. It's a stumbling block. In fact, that's the word that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 1 when he talks about how the cross of Jesus is so counterintuitive to human wisdom. Paul says, for the word of the cross, that is the preaching of the cross, is folly or foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Here's a test. Are you a Christian or not a Christian? Do you see the cross as power and glory and your only hope and salvation for your soul? Or do you see it as foolishness, silly? The world, Paul goes on to say, did not know God through its wisdom, So in the wisdom of God, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. We preach Christ crucified. He's a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. And he goes on later in that chapter to say, you are in him, in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Is that not the beautiful life? When one gets the cross and receives its mercy and its transforming power and has the hope of eternal glory, it's the beautiful life. True wisdom begins by giving up your own thoughts about yourself, about God, about your need, and about his plan. It begins by repenting of your former so creative ideas about who he is and what your problems are and and what you need. And we need to submit ourselves humbly to what the Bible says about ourselves, about God, about why the cross was needed. 
Do you know why the cross was needed? Do you know why Jesus came? Do, do you understand yet the logic of the cross? That there was no hope but sure death for us. But Jesus came and took that death for a multitude which no man can number. He paid the penalty of our rebellion for all those who would ever believe that it's true and ask to receive it from him. Have you done that? Well, do it today. Don't delay. Because look at the alternative to having Christ as your wisdom. Back to James. Now on to the results of this wisdom from below. Where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. As we'll see in just a minute, the wisdom that's from above is peaceable, it pursues peace, it's pure. But with this wisdom that's from below, you have the polar opposites, disorder and every evil practice. Third, James moves on in verse 17 and 18 to talk about wisdom from above. It's commendation. He had a question, then a contrast. Now, a, a commendation. What is the source of this wisdom that's from above? Well, it's from above. He says it. In other words, it's from God. It's not of this world. And if it's from God and it comes down from above, then it's a gift. You can't earn it. You can't get there to it mysteriously, you're supposed to go looking for it and search hard for it, as Proverbs says. But it's also true. You need to pray for it. Didn't James tell us that already in chapter 1, verse 5? When you're in the midst of trials, Christian, you're lacking wisdom, pray for wisdom. He will answer that prayer of faith, and he will give you wisdom liberally. Hasn't he already said in verse 17 of the first chapter? Every good gift comes down from above, from the Father of lights, in whom there's no variation or shadow of turning. God is the source of all true wisdom. And if wisdom comes from God, therefore, wisdom submits itself to God. The wise life submits itself to God and specifically to his word. If we could put it this way, we could say, wisdom has no original thoughts. God has original thoughts. And we're to learn his thoughts after him. We go astray when we make up what he hasn't said. When we think we have outgrown him or his book. We can't decide what's right in this world because we're smart enough to now. Until they thought at Harvard at the turn of the century and we live in a smart world still today, smarter in some ways. Most of us have smartphones. Are they smart? Well, yeah. These personal devices have more technology in them than that which ran the Apollo 11 mission. You can ask Siri a question, you'll usually get the right answer, and immediately so. If you want to know how tall Jake Gyllenhaal is, you simply type it into your computer or phone and you get it. 
If you want to know the annual rainfall of Botswana, wait three seconds and I'll give it to you. We have unparalleled access to information. It doesn't mean we know how to use it wisely, do we? Access to information or even intelligence is not the same thing as wisdom. It is not wise to be controlled by this device, to be addicted to its presence, for our relationships to be sacrificed because the glow calls us and our thumbs twitch. I'm speaking personally here. I have experience with such things. But I know this, that wisdom is self-control. Wisdom is not the number of headlines you can read in a day, but how to think about what's going on in the world and what God thinks about it and how he wants us to respond faithfully with a beautiful life. We don't decide what's right based on statistics, majorities, or the sway of change around us. The times, they are a-changing, Bob Dylan said in the 60s, and it seems as though we've had accelerated growth in recent years. It's very likely that our next president will be okay with people using whichever bathroom they choose, regardless of biological anatomy. The University of Cardiff is installing sanitary napkin holders in men's bathrooms now for men that menstruate. That's heavy. That's sad. These are crazy times. Someone recently asked me if I knew anyone who still opposed same-sex marriage. I said, yeah, I know someone. <laughs> me. I said, let me clarify. I actually don't think there's such a thing as same-sex marriage. Not in God's eyes. And uh, she looked at me funny. She said, how is that even possible today? And I said, well, you think I should have changed? And I said, well, I, I'm simply sticking with what Bill and Hillary Clinton believed just five years ago. What Barack Obama believed five years ago. I still believe it. Not because they once believed it, but I actually still believe what every society since the last, last decade has believed about marriage because of what the Bible says of, about marriage. We have an eternal God. We have a historical book. And so, though it's a historical book, it's not a dead book or, a, or an irrelevant book. It, we can't be easily swayed by common opinion, however fast the swell grows or the tide changes. These matters will divide us. By us, I don't mean our country. I don't even mean Christians in this country. I mean, eventually, these issues will divide us in this room. Some, when the pinch comes, will begin to call evil good and good evil. We need conviction and biblical thought about these things, but we also must remember to show a beautiful life in works of meekness and wisdom. The goal is not being right or conviction in any form 
Look at the characteristics that James lists for us in this wisdom that's from above. He offers eight characteristics about the wisdom from above. It's first pure. It's first pure, not just morally pure, though that can be assumed to be included. I think pure here has the sense of not being divided, it being clean, it being of the same. You see in the last of his list here of eight, that word sincere, that literally means without hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is being divided. What's on the inside is not the same thing that's on the outside. The opposite of hypocrisy is purity. That's what James is calling us to. That's what James says wisdom is like. And it's then peaceable. It pursues peace. It's gentle. It isn't haughty or rude. It's open to reason. It's reasonable. It can be corrected. It's not whimsical. It's not wishy-washy. It doesn't pursue peace at all costs without conviction. But it is open to reason. It is full of mercy and good fruits. It's impartial and sincere. James calls us to test wisdom by these things. James doesn't say, you want to know what wisdom is? All right, let's figure out who has the highest IQ in the room, or how many books you might have, or, or how many you read in the last year, or how many degrees you might have after your name, or, or simply who comes across as the sharpest tack of the bunch. No. James tells us what wisdom looks like. But again, we have to notice that James hasn't yet defined wisdom for us. Nor does he. He doesn't define wisdom. He gives us characteristics. He'll go on to tell us about the result of this kind of wisdom. But, but he doesn't define it. What is he assuming? Well, he's assuming a, a Proverbs kind of wisdom. I would define wisdom like this based on the Bible and in Proverbs specifically. Wisdom is the skill of living well before God in all of life according to the scriptures. Wisdom is the skill of living well before God in all of life according to the scriptures. And that one word, wisdom, could really get filled in with the whole book of Proverbs. If you want to define wisdom, read 31 chapters in Proverbs, and you'll have a good feel for what wisdom is. Some have suggested that in Proverbs 3, we have the best summary of the whole book of Proverbs. There it says, trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord. Turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. We could add the book of Ecclesiastes to the definition of wisdom. The book of Ecclesiastes essentially tries out earthly wisdom before landing on and concluding something about biblical wisdom or true wisdom. With worldly wisdom, Solomon went exploring for satisfaction. We all know about that satisfaction pursuit. We think we want that, we get that. 
We're not fully satisfied. Things let us down. We think another one will do it. A newer one will do it. A better one will do it. James, I'm sorry, Solomon says that everything under the sun is like grasping for the wind. However, he comes to conclude that everything down here below can actually be transformed into God-given gifts and God-given tasks to be enjoyed. And so he says in Ecclesiastes 9, go, eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart for God has already approved what you do. If he has accepted your deeds, if you're accepted in him, then Celebrate, let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love. And whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. Wisdom is the skill of living well before God in all of life, according to the scriptures. It looks like that wise woman of Proverbs 31 How could we not on this Mother's Day, as we're talking about wisdom in the Bible, not read Proverbs, at least some of it, Proverbs 31 together. Proverbs 31, verse 10, it talks about an excellent wife. Who can find one? She is far more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her, and he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not harm all the days of her life. She seeks wool and flax and works with willing hands. She's like the ships of the merchant. She brings her food from afar. She rises while it is yet night and provides food for her household and portions for her maidens. She opens her hand to the poor and reaches out her hands to the needy. She opens her mouth with wisdom and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. She looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and call her blessed, her husband also, and he praises her. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Young ladies in this room, this is the wise woman according to the Bible. It's different than the smart woman or wise woman that the world prescribes for us. Will we be shaped by God's word? Well, back to James for one more verse with the results of this wisdom that's from above. Verse 18, in a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Now that is thick. It's no less thick, no less of a head-scratcher in the Greek. It can be interpreted a few different ways. It's hard to draw. Are you picturing that? Are you seeing that? Or is it just me? Maybe I'm not so wise. (laughs) But what is clear about verse 18 is that there is some apparent collage of peace and making peace and righteousness and there is sowing and harvesting going on. Those who are at peace with God, because they have been accounted righteous, as good old father Abraham was, these people want to see a beautiful harvest come from it. 
And that's either a harvest born out of righteousness or a harvest that produces righteousness. I don't know which of those two it is. I'll leave you to figure out on your own. Again, I'm not sure how to draw all this or order it, but I know it's beautiful. It's a beautiful life that he's describing. It's a commendation of wisdom that is commendable. And notice here, wisdom apparently is to be used not for private endeavors, but for peace-pursuing endeavors. There's a togetherness about all this in James. This wisdom in James's thinking can't be exercised on a deserted island alone. It involves others. It affects others. That's how the harvest is born. That's how a beautiful life is seen by the world. But let's make sure as the world looks at us, and let's be sure as we talk about Christ and his word and wisdom, that we make clear that this all starts with Christ. That there is no wisdom found in this Bible apart from Christ. That all wisdom in this Bible leads back to Christ. Christ is the key to God, and hence the key to wisdom. And there is no wisdom without him. There's no beautiful life without him. 1 Corinthians 1 told us that he, he became wisdom for us. You want wisdom? You go to Jesus. Start there. Start in his word. Colossians 2 tells us that in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. He's a treasure trove of wisdom and knowledge and blessing. That's what it's like in his kingdom. Jesus spoke of his kingdom as a treasure in Matthew 13. He gives a very quick parable. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field so that he can have that treasure, which is worth more than all that he had. And Jesus and his kingdom, that is the treasure. He is worth anything and everything you could ever give up in order to have him. So come to him. Cash all your chips in. That chip of self-reliance, that chip of self-religion, that chip of self-satisfaction, that chip of selfish ambition, of jealousy and, and envy. Cash these chips in and receive his righteousness and enjoy the treasure that he is. Christian, you don't need to compromise. You have the treasure of Christ. He's given us everything we need. We don't need to fight and scrape and scrap for what we think is ours. He's given us so much more than ever should be ours. We can look to him. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we ask for wisdom because we need it. I'm sure everyone in this room can think of specific contexts for needing wisdom, decisions that need to be made, problems that need to be solved, that only you can solve, things we don't know what to do in, 
or how to fix them. Help us to trust in you. Help us to rely on you. Help us to keep asking for wisdom when we feel like we need it. And be thankful for the opportunity to pray and the reason to pray. We pray you would help us seek wisdom. We don't want to just be prayers for wisdom. We want to be seekers of wisdom. Motivate us, Lord. We pray you would be our wisdom, our vision, our everything. Be our vision, O Lord of our hearts. Be our best thoughts, our best thought by day or by night, waking or sleeping. May your presence be our light. Be thou our wisdom and our true word. Thou our great Father. We, your true sons and daughters, and you in us dwelling and we with you, one. Help us now, Lord, to sing that old hymn with joy and confidence in you. We pray it would be so. Amen.